Well, I'd like you to look at your Bible with me, please, to James chapter 1. We're jumping back in. James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church at Jerusalem. This is the oldest book in the New Testament by way of writing. He is writing to dispersed believers, converted to Christ after the resurrection of Christ. The early church was born, persecution came, and the people of God were scattered like seed, Hebrew believers, okay, born again, transformed, scattered like seed all over the Roman Empire. Apparently, James had heard that Some of the conduct, quality, the way these new converts were thinking and living was not consistent with biblical Christianity, real faith. So he pens these five chapters as an exhortation. It's a challenge to God's people, newly converted, to live their faith and to live in a way that validates their faith because, like Now, as it was then, people can say, I have faith. I'm a Christian, but doesn't necessarily informing faith because faith is more than your words. It's validated by your life. It's not just saying it, it's living it. So genuine saving faith bears fruit. And this is a book of saying, this is what a Christian who's truly a Christian ought to live like ought to think like things that they ought to do, things that they must not do, things that they're doing that they must stop because they're a Christian, things that they must do because they are a Christian. 60 imperatives in 108 verses. An imperative is a command, non-optional. This is what a Christian must do. This is what a Christian must not do if they're a genuine Christian. You can't make up Christianity. It's what happens in our culture. We claim Christ, and even guys in the pulpit on Sundays will claim Christ and then make it up as they go. The Bible prescribes the record and revelation of truth reality. This is the way it is, and the Bible defines Christianity, and James is making an effort to define living real faith. This is how it works. This is how it thinks. Otherwise, it's not real. And you can deceive yourself. And if you are a Christian, this is how to live it. Because two things happen when you live it. You validate it. You validate the claim. And secondly, you mature it. You, when you apply your faith, whatever category of life, the bright-ups are applying their faith. As they apply their faith, living by faith, willing to leave friends and family and familiarity to go to a place very unfamiliar, certainly not welcoming of the gospel, faith is applied. When that faith gets applied, it gets matured. So you perfect it and you validate it when you live it. And if that makes sense, would you say amen? Okay, so that's a bit of a reminder. Chapter 1, we're going to read the first 18 verses. The first 18 verses go together. Real Christianity deals with difficulty differently and successfully. That's the big idea. If you're a real Christian, this is how you think and act in the face of difficulty. Internal difficulty, external difficulty, material difficulty. 
Real Christianity deals with difficulty differently. That's what this section says. Let's read it together, and then we'll jump into verses 13 through 18. We'll pick up where we left off the last time I was with you. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes, that's Hebrew Christians, who are dispersed abroad, diaspora, like seed, greetings. Then he jumps right into it. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's X trouble. You run into trouble. This is what you do. You count it all joy. Why? Verse three, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, because he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So that's external trouble. Real Christians deal with external trouble, trials that they encounter and stumble into, by doing some things that other people don't do. They see it for what it is, which is a test to reveal their heart and their weakness, an exercise to strengthen them. They develop, develop my trial, my difficulty develops what the Bible calls here perseverance, which is spiritual strength, the ability to endure difficulty. Three, it's a tool that is meant to refine them, to perfect them, to make them like Christ. It's a time of life, this difficulty, it becomes a a time to reach out. When you're in a tough place, you have a voice into the hearts of others in your difficulty that otherwise you may not have. It is a influence moment. The diaspora, the persecution that drove the Hebrew Christians out into the culture becomes a platform in their difficulty to share their faith. Number five, it is a stage, your trouble, a stage to display the glory of God. But the power of God may be made perfect on full display in your weakness. And finally, it's a table where you can taste the richness of God that otherwise you would not taste. So here's how the Christian deals with difficulty. I see it for what it is. It's a multifaceted tool by the best to make me better. That's a conviction which causes me to accept and welcome trial. Not because it's easy, but because of its potentiality. What it does when properly handled. Two, to celebrate it and embrace it. Count it all joy is not hyperbole. If I understand what it is, it motivates me to embrace it and celebrate it. Thirdly, I stay with it. I don't run from it. I don't resign. I don't drink my troubles away. I embrace it. I deal with it. And I cooperate with God's intention through it. What do Christians do? They see trouble for what it is because, here's the second thought, they see God for who he is. Which is 
housed in the latter part of this passage. When we get there, you're going to see God's good every day. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Thirdly, a Christian sees trouble in, in light of who they are, inadequate and desperate. I don't care who you are, if you're in a difficult place today, which is a high probability, family, friends, work, health, life, you're in trouble. Here's something true about you, and you may feel it and be ready to admit it more than normal. You're not up for it. You don't have the strength for it, nor do you have the wisdom to accomplish what it's intended to accomplish, which is why verse 5 says, since you lack wisdom, says but, but it's since. Since you lack wisdom, ask of God. Keep on asking God for what? Wisdom. Wisdom for what? Cooperating with my difficulty, God's intention in my difficulty, so that I can get and extract out of the not good something good. And I need to ask, verse 6, in faith. That is believing prayer. So if you're in trouble today, see it for what it is. See God for who he is, a good God who always does good and uses not good to do good in you and get what you don't have in your intrinsic inadequacy, your desperate dependence. God, help me. This is too strong for me. It's too big for me. I don't know where to go. I don't know how to get there. This crucible that is meant to help me will break me unless you supply what I need through it. That's how Christians deal with difficulty externally. Application, one of the chief categories of difficulty we walk through, verses 9 through 11, but let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. So humble circumstances is economically poor, desperately poor. That's a trial. Let him, let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position and let the rich man, that's prosperity, not poverty. The trial is prosperity. Let him glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he'll pass away for the sun rises with a scorching wind, withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, the prosperous man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Real Christians think about poverty and prosperity differently. They see it through this lens of reality. They see my economic circumstances as temporary. If I'm poor, this is temporary, and it is not my identity. I am a rich man in Christ. I am a joint heir. I am the possessor of everything the Son possesses, Jesus Christ, and it's dispensed according to the wisdom of God. So I see my trouble for what it is temporary, and it is not the basis of my identity. My identity. And if I'm a rich man, I don't find my identity in my riches. And I recognize that my riches are temporary. And I act like it. I live in light of it. Verse 12, the reward and encouragement, blessed is a man who perseveres, endures under trial, for once he has been dakamas, approved, in other words, he he passes through the trial and the affirmation that he has matured in it, he will receive the crown of life, life's crown, which the Lord has promised to those who love him, because enduring trial faithfully is an evidence of love. Verse 13, we move from external trial, material trial, to 13, internal trial. 
which I'm going to call, because it's used here this way, temptation. But it is difficulty. It's coming from the inside. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. So what we saw last time is the source of temptation. We're going to triumph over it. You've got to recognize where it comes from. Where does it not come from? God. It's not deity. God does not tempt. Why? It would be contrary to his purpose to set you up to take you out. He is good, verse 17, every good thing bestowed, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So how many days is God good? Every day. Any part of the day that God is not good? No part of the day. Verse 17 makes an axiomatic declaration. God is good and always good, period. Temptation, which can lead me to sin, is not good, and it doesn't produce good. Therefore, God's not the source of it. It's contrary, verse 18, to his purpose, because in the exercise of his will, not yours nor mine, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the firstfruits among his creatures. God's purpose is, includes saving us to be so to the end that we can become the evidence of his gracious work looking like his firstborn son. So God can't tempt, it's contrary to his purpose and it's contrary to his character. So the first thing you see about temptation is I can't blame it on God like Adam did. The woman you gave me. Okay? She's my problem and you're my problem for giving me this problem. We're in a blame-shifting culture. You cannot blame God for the inward challenges and temptations that come your way. He himself does not tempt anyone. So then we moved from where does it come from? What is the source? If it's not deity, what is it? Desire. Your desire, inward appetites and passions, each one, verse 14, each one, meaning no exceptions, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by, here's the source, his own epithumia, his own desire. The originating source is an inward passion, hunger of the heart. I have a desire. Now listen, I said this three weeks ago. It's not evil desire, it's desire. It's strong passions in my humanity. It can become evil by the way I seek to secure it. You say, well, what about the devil? What role does he have in temptation? He takes the desire that I have and he manipulates it so that I try to secure my satisfaction for my legitimate desire in an illegitimate way. See this? these stones? Turn them into bread. You're hungry. That's a desire. The temptation of Matthew 4. That's the desire. Utilize your assets to secure your own solutions. Hey, Eve, you want to know things like God knows things? 
Because he knows when you eat, you're going to be like God. Knowing things is a natural desire. What the enemy did is seduced her into thinking that the solution was in something that was prohibited by God instead of allowed by God. Oh, no, it's no big deal. He hides consequences and he promotes a solution that's destructive. It's destructive because it is out of line with the purposes of God. Where does temptation come from? Its source is an inward human hunger. Natural. It can be affected and influenced by your depravity because you're fallen in Adam. So there's this appetite to be what? Willful. Self-dependent. Selfishly independent. My Selfish independence influences my pursuit of satisfaction. The enemy unites with an effort to invite me through his means and his tools, whether it's a person or the cosmos, the world in which I live, to provoke and promote a solution that's self-satisfying in a way that's God-denying. That's where it comes from. So if you're hungry, you're at risk. If you're socially hungry, you're relationally hungry, if you're physically hungry, if you're materially hungry, if you have desires, those desires become the source that drive you to a solution that puts you in harm's way. Each one is tempted because of his own deep, strong desires. Listen, behind every sin, there's an appetite. The dealing, of, dealing with sin is not just confessing it's wrong. Dealing with the root appetite and the solution that God provides versus the one the world promises. The world promises gratification in ways that don't gratify. The world promises solutions. My flesh, my fallenness seduces me into believing that there are solutions that God does not define as a solution. As a matter of fact, he prohibits those as options. That's where temptation comes from. And a Christian goes, ah, I get it. It's not God. It's coming from within me. It may be aggravated by my flesh. It may be amplified by my enemy. It may be impacted by the world in which I live, but it starts with me, which means I can deal with it if I'll deal with it God's way. Overcoming temptation recognizes its source. Number two, it recognizes the steps that it takes. The path. Verse 14, each one is tempted when he is carried away. I use the word drawn away. Carried away has the idea of being drawn. The hunger moves me to pursue a solution. Drawn, carried away, to be taken in tow by our desires. It involves an independent search for fulfillment. And I used an illustration for you. It's like a fish in the safe of the safety of the environment along the shore of a lake where he finds sanctuary and safety, but he gets hungry. There's no food 
among those rushes and, and plant life. And so he moves out because he's hungry to find food. I have a fish tank in my kitchen. I've got about eight kinds of things in there from shrimp to, to ne- neon. Uh, I forget what they're called. What are they, what are they called? Tetras. Tetras. Yeah, thank you. Obviously, I enjoy them. I just don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> but this is what I do know every morning, including this morning. I flip the kitchen light on. It's in the kitchen. And I move over towards that. I don't, I don't know that I have any fish. There's not a fish in sight. I flip their light on, and I hold my hands over the top with the fish food, and all of a sudden, I see all of them. Wherever they were sleeping through the night in safety, when they see the promise of food and nutrition and satisfaction, it does something for them. It draws them out to a promised solution. Everyone is tempted when that desire draws you out to find a solution. You are drawn. You are moved. You're taken in tow for fulfillment. That's what happens. That's how it works. Verse 14 says, carried away and enticed. The word enticed is a hunting and fishing term. It has to, it, you're tempted by the allure. You are baited, as it were, by a promised solution. So how does temptation work? Well, I'm hungry. My hunger moves me to seek a solution because hungry people eat. Hungry people don't stay hungry. Lonely people don't want to stay lonely. They'll try to find a relationship. They'll try to find some connection. It's the the challenge of the Internet. You have access to so many things, driven by an appetite to connect. That hunger draws you out for a solution because you're not going to remain in that condition. Along comes a lure. I'm going to call it a deception. Because a lure is the promise of a solution that has a hook in it. Everyone is tempted when they're drawn away and enticed. Enticed is the word for lore, baited by a lore, the promise of a satisfaction. A person, a place, a menu item, a solution, drawn away and enticed. How? By the source of my own desire. So the steps are, one, I am drawn taken in tow by my desires, looking for satisfaction too. I get deceived, enticed, and then I make a decision. Verse 15, when desire, strong desire, I'm going to choose that word because lust has such a negative implication. But when strong desire, hunger, has conceived. What do you mean conceived? When the hunger and the opportunity for a solution unite together in a decision. I choose to eat. I'm making a decision to eat. The solution is a lure, not a God-given solution, but a false provision. And when I take it, when I make that decision, listen, temptation is not a sin. Being attracted is not a sin. It's the decision that conceives the sin. I choose against 
God's prescribed will. I seek a solution adversarial to the way and the will of God. When it is accomplished and gives birth to sin, that's disobedience. So if you're following with me, you're drawn, you're deceived, you make a decision, that's the union of desire, will, and the option. Four, that results in disobedience, sin, gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So the last step is death and the destruction that goes with that decision to disobey, driven by a desire, and involving a deception. That is the path to trouble. And Christians get that. They don't blame God for it. They get it. And they deal with it. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brother. In other words, don't fool yourself. And then we read 17 and 18, because everything good comes from a God who's always good and his purpose is to do good, to make you like his firstborn son as a first fruit, evidencing his great grace and goodness. That's how Christians think about difficulty, the source of it and the steps of it. Now today, and I've got three weeks with you this week and the next two, Lord willing, I want to talk about the strategy to deal with temptation. Okay, I'm going to give you the first one today. It's the word observation. So if you're going to overcome temptation, you must have a commitment and a conviction to what I'm going to call observation. A strategy for dealing with temptation involves observation. You want another set of words? Get your head up and pay attention. John Owen, who has written a fantastic work, hard to read called uh, Temptation and Sin, The Mortification of the Flesh. John Owen was a 16th, 16th, 17th century Puritan. He wrote extensively on this subject. Probably the most helpful, insightful words I know of on dealing with temptation. He put it this way, labor to know the ways, the wiles, the methods, and the occasions of lusts past successes in your life. Understand, in our language, how the temptation has worked successfully in the past. Understand the ways, the wiles, the methods, and the occasions of past successes of temptation in your life. Listen, NBA coaches are watching game film on Saturday night because of NBA games that are happening today. James Harden, who plays for the Houston Rockets, scored hardly at all in the last game because the Golden State Warriors came up with a defensive strategy to deal with his tendencies. James is left-handed. He's an MVP player. He's extraordinarily talented. Now, apart from scratching him in the eyes so he couldn't see, which is one way to approach it, um, they also... Not only double-teamed him, but they took away his left side. James is left-handed. He likes to go to his left, so they overplayed him to the left, so he couldn't go left. And then they watched his tendencies. He's got a couple of things he likes to do that make teams vulnerable to his talent. And Golden State adjusted. They won game two. Now, last night, they lost game three because James adjusted. Here's what the enemy does. 
I see what they've done. I'm looking at game film. That's observation. Maybe you could add the word deliberation. I'm thinking about it. I'm looking back at scenarios where temptation has gotten its way with me. And I'm examining those things with an eye to defeat the enemy, to overcome the propensity. I want you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 7. And I'm going to show you an illustration that involves observation. Just a, a personal disclaimer, as I was reluctant to turn to this passage today. I'm reluctant because I've turned to this passage 10 times this year and taught this to a group of people. I kind of feel like this is all I know. And I really resisted taking you to this section because I've taught it all over the world, all over. Did it at Shepherd's Conference with a group of pastors that were here, however many were in the chapel. This is what I know. People ask me to teach on this because this is so relevant. Proverbs 7 is a morality play. It is a vivid, unlike any other place in the Bible, illustration of how temptation works. This is the strategy. And I thought about not teaching it to you because I think I taught some of it four years ago here. I've taught it in a bunch of places. And then I thought this, you know, this is just me to you. You know what? You weren't all in the chapel or you haven't been everywhere else. And you're parents. And you're Christians. And you know what? There's a high probability you're going to fail with regard to temptation in a catastrophic way. Over 50% of men and women will fail morally. 80 plus percent of unmarried men and women fail morally. And that doesn't include pornography. I'm just talking about actual physical immorality. You have children. We're going to have Mother's Day next week, Father's Day in June. I thought, you know what? I'm going to walk you through the steps that I know are the most vividly inspiring perspectives on how people who don't want to get in trouble. Why do good people do bad things? Here's my conviction. Good people do bad things morally, rarely intend to, but they do. I've never heard anybody sit in my presence, and I've been a pastor a long time, and I've dealt with this a lot of times. Say, yeah, I set out to do this. You know, I wanted to blow up my marriage, ruin my reputation, and make my kids hate me. Yeah, I accomplished it. Nobody ever says that. Nobody ever sits in my office as a couple who wants to get married and say, yeah, I'm going to do good for five years, and then I'm going to blow this thing up. I'm going to be faithful for a season, and then I'm going to go AWOL. No Christian ever gets converted to Christ and says, I'm going to ruin my temper my testimony with my friends and family. You know, the number two reason people don't buy what we're selling when it comes to Christianity is immorality. Just straight up. They don't expect it of themselves, but somehow they expect it of us, and they should. So here are my thoughts. I'm going to teach you this in hopes that you'll reteach this because you've got young people in your life and you obviously need to do this age appropriate. And I'll be sensitive because I know we have a variety of ages in here. 
But I want to walk you through the most vivid illustration in the Bible on how good people do bad things, because this is the number one thing people say to me. I never thought this could happen to me. And I'm sure you're sitting here thinking, many of you, this could never happen to me. Oh, yes, it can. And yes, it will without intentionality and the application of these principles. Because percentage-wise, things are not in your favor. It's more likely than not. And if you're here today and you fumbled this ball, then this will be a tool to help you from fumbling again. So Proverbs chapter 7, I'm going to teach it to you. I actually may give you, I, I had some pastors ask me to please send me my notes. Well, if you saw my notes, you can't make them out. Um, so I rewrote them. So if you want them, you may have them. And I'm not presuming. You may say, man, I don't want any of that. That's, I'm going to think better than you do. But if you want them, I'm going to arm you with them. Because if there's somebody in your life, including your own health and holiness, you need to understand this. Because this is why good people do bad things. They don't intend to, but they do. Why? Proverbs chapter 7. We're going to start today, and I've got two weeks with you, or two more, rather, feel like I want to take a vote. You guys want me to teach this? All right, this is a father to a son. This is inspired. This is Solomon to his son. This is a warning passage. It involves an exhortation, which I'm going to call prevention. And then there's an illustration that is designed to show you the path to moral compromise. So you have the prevention of moral compromise and the path to moral compromise. We'll get started right here. And by the way, here's a sobering thought. The guy who taught this didn't live this. The guy who wrote these words, who God used to communicate the truth, didn't live these truths later in life. So it's possible to know it and still not live it. Proverbs 7, first five verses, the prevention of moral failure. And this is, again, under the strategy of observation. Here's how it works. And this is a means to prevent it. Why do good people do bad things? My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Now, the word keep is informed by the word treasure. The word keep, there's three times it's used in this text. This means to retain it, to store it up. Treasure gives you that flavor. Take my words and put them in your heart. We would use the word memorize the words that are being given to you. A word about the words. The words of the Father are not just, hey, don't... Don't do something. This is the words of God transferred by the Father to the Son. Verse 20, chapter 6, My son, observe the commandment of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. That has to do with the law of God given to parents who were to give those laws and those commands to whom? Their children. This is Deuteronomy 6. My dad used to say, Don't back up farther than you have to, Harry. Because you'll run into something. Well, I, I did. I ran into some 
buddy's car. And when I got home, guess what he said? Hey, didn't I tell you, don't back up farther than you need to back up. That's one of his proverbs. That's not this. This is God's proverbs and commandments given to you through your parents. All right, so it's the words of God transferred by parents because parents need to be instructing their children in the truth of God's word. That's on us, not just on Sunday school teachers and and ministry leaders. It's parents. My son, keep my words, store them, my commandments within you. Verse 2, the second use of the word keep, not store it, but do it, live it, apply it. Keep my commandments and live. So you put them in and then you live them out. Now, the key part of verse two is found in the second part. And my teaching as the apple of your eye. Now, he's making a statement here figuratively saying this is how you're to think about the truth of God given to you by the parents who love you on behalf of God. Treat the teaching as the apple of your eye. Somebody tell me what that means. If I'm looking at my child and say, you're the apple of my eye, what am I saying? You're precious to me. You're like the pupil of my eye, super valuable. You ever had an eye injury? You ever have your sight threatened? I was building a stable for Karen and I was using a hammer with a hammer. I was using my hammer, the claw side, as a chisel. And I was tapping on the face of the hammer with my other hammer. You know more injuries happen to eyes doing that than any other way, metal to metal. A piece of shrapnel from one of the head of those hammers entered into my right eye. My eye filled up with blood. I could see it. Ended up at the eye foundation in Birmingham. They sucked all the stuff out of the inside. It was not a good thing. Do you know how many pair of safety glasses I own? (laughs) Karen can tell you, I got three sitting by the door in the garage. I've got them in the little tool drawer in the kitchen. What do you think the chances are me pulling that process off again? Not none, zero. You know why? This is precious. Now think about it. This is what God is saying through Solomon to his son. You not only need to put these words in your heart, you need to treat them as precious. You need to prioritize them as precious. You need to take care of them as if they're the most important thing going on. Let me give you a uh, passage of scripture. This is Deuteronomy 32. And this is the use of that figure of speech when God talks to his precious people. Deuteronomy 32, verse 10, when God's speaking of Israel, he found him, that's Israel or Jacob, in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness, he led him about, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Okay, so that's God telling uh, through Moses to his people, you are like the apple of my eye. In a very difficult place. Well, what did you do for us as the apple of your eye? Verse 11, Deuteronomy 32. This is what an apple of his eye receives. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, God referring to himself, and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them, carrying them on its pinions. In other words, you're so precious to me. I'm like a mother eagle with my eaglets. 
I'm going to take care of you. My focus is on you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to carry you. Uh, You're precious to me, and I'm prioritizing you as precious. I'm not going to forget you. I'm not going to neglect you. You're a priority to me. If you have young children, you understand this. A baby is a priority to a mother. This is what Solomon says. Keep my words in you. Keep my words, live it, and treat my words as if they're a priority to you. As if they're precious to you. A priority around which you are to live your life. Proverbs 7, verse 3, bind them, the words, that you're keeping both practically and inwardly and prioritizing, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. What does that mean? Put them someplace where you can see them. You know, you tie anybody tie the string around your fingers? I know it's not so, I mean, I haven't seen that as much anymore. But in the Old Testament, they would have phylacteries and a string. They'd have the law of God on their arm, a little leather deal, and a string that goes down that would be tied on their hand as a reminder of the law of God. This is who I am. This is the truth that I know, and I ought to be living this out. It is like the post-it notes of life. It's remember this. I forget a lot, but you can't forget this. Bind them in a place where you can see them. That's what you see in verse 21 of chapter 6. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. Review it. Proverbs 3.3. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Proverbs 6.21, we just saw. Deuteronomy 6.6. These commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts. And if you're a parent, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you get up. Constant connection is the idea. Origen, the early church father, had the word of God read to him every morning and every evening. Why? I tend to forget it. Listen, I'm a pilot. Every time you get in a plane before you fly it, Joel, what do you do? You go through a checklist, right? Joel's a pilot, right? You don't just hop in and fly. You got to make sure you're ready to fly. And you have a list. Why do you have a list? Because you can't remember everything. So you go through the list and you check and you check. It's a checklist. And you got to go through the checklist pre-flight. Why? Because you got to fly safely and you're not smart enough to fail or to remember everything and to fail is catastrophic. Oh, dog, I forgot to check the fuel. (laughs) You get the idea? All right, so here's Solomon talking to his son. I want you to memorize it. I want you to live it. I want you to apply it. I want you to prioritize it. And I want you to consistently review it like a checklist of life. Verse 4. Say to wisdom, wisdom comes from the words of God. You are my sister. Call understanding your intimate friend. What does that mean? You build a relationship with it. You become so familiar with it, it's like family. Look, some of us feel like family with our iPad or our computer. We, we're, we're just, man, we got that. Mark obviously doesn't. He knows whether the battery's alive or dead. But other than that, technology for some of us is foreign. But for others, we're very comfortable with it. This is build a relationship with the words of God so you're intimate and familiar with it. 
Treat it like family. That's my last thought for you today, and then we'll jump in next week with the illustration and observation. But I want you to see this, verse 5. That they may keep you. That's the third use of the word keep in this passage. It's not memorize it. It's not apply it. It's be protected by it. Keep in this case is like centuries. It's a word of protection that they may protect you from an adulteress. That's immorality from the temptress from the foreigner. That's someone from a non covenant people culture who doesn't enjoy the same morals that you enjoy from the person who has no godly morals. That's how you could put it. Who flatters with her words, the temptress. Verse 5, that they may keep you. What is the they? What is it? It's the word of God, God's truth, the scripture, the Bible, the word of God. It will protect you. If you'll memorize it, if you'll apply it, if you'll prioritize it, if you'll build a relationship with it, if you'll review it, it will do something for you. It'll protect you. It'll protect you. An ounce of prevention is worth what? A pound of cure. The word of God has a supernatural ability to protect you. And it does it in three ways. And that's where we're going to start next week. Okay? So that's James chapter 1 says you need to know how temptation works the steps that it takes, and you need a strategy to overcome it. And it begins with an observation and a deliberation. Father, thank you for the time this morning. It's flown by. This is where we live. This is the reality that we deal with. The world, the flesh, the enemy, enticing, inviting, making promises, to satisfy desires in our humanity. And Lord, we don't want to fail and fumble. We want to honor you as the first fruits. And we don't want to endure the death that will come when we make choices that are destructive. So help us understand and help us to prioritize the Bible as a solution, as the first step to say yes to your word before we have to say no to the temptations that violate your word. Help us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen.